Second Thessalonians chapter two. Are you there? Amen. Amen. Yeah, we're there. Okay. Yeah, I hear you're right. Yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> Second Thessalonians two. Want you follow as I read the scriptures, beginning with verse thirteen. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 15, 16, and 17. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. I call your attention there towards the end of verse 16, the two words that are the title of our message tonight. And Paul told these believers who, in verse 3, he had told them that there would be a falling away before the rapture. There would be a time of spiritual apostasy. And certainly they probably believed that they were experiencing at that moment of time because of the persecution they were enduring. And uh, a little bit shaken by the prophecy that Paul had written to them about in chapter 2 about the beast, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, and how this man was the energization, was all energized by Satan. And uh, just of the things that would happen during the tribulation time. And these people, of course, not being as, as perhaps as well versed in prophecy as Paul, were a little bit shaken. They were a little bit concerned about things. But Paul wrote to them, and in these final verses in chapter 2, he gives them good hope. And tonight we want to see the good hope that God gives to you and I. We need hope, amen? We need hope for, regardless of the holidays or not, we need hope in our lives. We need hope for the future. And we're going to see tonight how God gives us that good hope. Now, Father, bless your word. Strengthen our faith for this midweek service. Speak to us in a personal way. Speak to us, dear Lord, where our hearts are pricked. Speak to us tonight where, Lord, we'll make some changes. Speak to us tonight that, Lord, we'll not hold on to our stubborn ways. Help us this evening for those who's here, those watching by live stream, and those perhaps will be coming in late, that, Lord, that everything that needs to be said would be said for your glory and praise. I pray you'd use this message as a, as a marker in our life. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're speaking about good hope tonight, and certainly after... Uh, talking about Calvinism last, last Wednesday and uh, looking at a couple messages there about the tribulation and the beast, we do need good hope. I don't know if you know the name, but a man by the name of Eugene Land is a self-made millionaire. And Eugene Land lived up in the New York area several years ago, and uh, many had heard about his self-accomplishments and how he had done so well financially, and he was asked to go to sixth grade class at an elementary school in East Harlem. This elementary school, in fact, most elementary schools there in East Harlem were known as schools where kids, it was a very rough area, still a rough area today, where kids would go there. And it was just known that kids, by the time they got to sixth grade, all of them would fall into the statistic of being kids who would never graduate from school, never make it through high school. They'd wind up on the streets, they'd wind up on drugs, they'd wind up on gangs, or they'd wind up being dead. And so, of course, they wanted, the administrators of the school wanted to inspire them and encourage them. They read and heard about Eugene Land. They contacted him. They said, Mr. Land, you've done very well. You've made tons of money doing this, and you've got a plan that works for you. Would you come and speak to these kids? 
Eugene Lanton was honored and quite honestly, he was a little bit flattered that he was asked to speak. He was never done something like that before. And so he started working like many of us would. He started thinking about different things to say and, and write on. And he wrote out a whole speech and was really fired up about his speech. And he came in, as you can imagine, this was a sixth grade class. If you can imagine a sixth grade boys class, a little bit more rowdier than that. And he walked into this class, these sixth graders here at the East Harlem Elementary School. And he looked at these kids and he realized that the message, the, the speech that he wrote out was not appropriate. He just thought, you know, this message is not going to cut it. He said, I only get one chance these kids. And he started feeling his heart a very, very deep concern about the future of these kids. He had a deep concern about, will these kids make it? Well, you know, the statistics say that most of them will drop out of school. And most of them might even die. And most of them may not even make it to 18. And he started thinking... Very quickly, his mind was in fast motion for just those few moments while they were making the introduction. What should I say to these kids? And he got up and he just told them his story. And then he made this power statement. Are you listening? He made this power statement. He says, now listen, kids. He said, if you'll stay in school and you graduate high school, I'll pay for the college tuition for every one of you. If you'll stay in school and you graduate high school, I'll pay the college tuition for all of you. Somewhere along the way, that lit up a fire in those kids. They tracked that, grad, that sixth grade graduating class all the way to 12th grade. 90% of those kids graduated high school and went and completed college. 90% of them completed high school, completed college. They interviewed these young people, and this is what one of them said, which probably embodies what, what all of them thought. This one student said, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. What a thought. I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. That's what hope is. That's what great hope is. That's what good hope is. Something you look forward to, something waiting for you. I wrote down in my notes my definition of hope if you want to write this down. Hope is the anticipation that a future event or promise will turn out favorably. Hope is the anticipation that a future event or promise will turn out favorably. Now, everyone in this room has said, has used the word hope in a, in a very positive sense, one way or the other. There are students in here right now, or our college students I'm thinking about right now, they're going through finals, that are thinking this, I hope I get an A on my test. Uh, there are going to be some who are going to get down to graduation, and they just said, I hope I just get the right grade, so I just make it out and get my degree. Uh, some of us are going to have test results with the doctor, and the older you get, you're a little bit more, a little more conscientious of that. And some of us will get a blood test, and as we get the blood test back, we're going to say, I hope my blood tests are good. Uh, we, we think when things happen, I hope things turn out good. You know, if you're involved in an automobile accident or something happens, you know, the first thing coming to your mind will be, I hope everything is okay. We all live by hope. But I want you to notice tonight, in the midst of a very dark situation, the believers of Thessalonica were promised and encouraged by the Apostle Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about what I call good hope. And I want you to notice tonight in the context of what we're reading, I want you to see the good hope about salvation. Now we talk about, we're going to be talking salvation on Saturday night and Sunday night and Sunday morning. Uh, you pray for the Sunday morning message. I'm excited about preaching from 2 Corinthians 5.19 on the deity of Christ. It's entitled God in Christ. The Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And I'm looking forward to preaching that and weaving the gospel message into that. And I'm looking forward to Saturday and Sunday preaching the gospel. I love preaching the gospel. I love the opportunity of telling people how to be saved. But we need to pause for a moment as God's people who are saved and under 
understand as we read verses 13 to, to, to 17 tonight that this is about the good hope about salvation. Tonight we're going to see what is and what is not salvation. We're going to see what to look forward to in salvation. We're going to see what we're supposed to do with our salvation. So tonight, let's get out, let's buckle our seatbelts and go for a ride as we look this evening at the good help of salvation. Notice number one, if you would please, in verse 13, which you notice you'll need tonight the riches of our salvation. How many glad that salvation is free but salvation is rich? Amen? The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. You know, we have the riches of our salvation. Paul spent time in this passage of scripture telling them in the beginning about the rapture in verse 1. And then he told them in verse 2 that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter uh, uh, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Those believers, someone had forged a letter in Paul's name, and it told them that the rapture had already occurred. And of course, if you're not grounded in the word of God, and you have any sense of what the rapture is, you're a little bit concerned and anxious about it. What do you mean the rapture's already come? Why am I still here? And so they, that these letters were forged, and there are these false teachers telling that the rapture already occurred, and Paul had to re-clarify with them the doctrine of the rapture. And then he told them that what would happen after the rapture would be the seven years of tribulation, and that, that time period would be dominated by personality. He's known as the man of perdition. He's called the Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2. He's called the beast in Revelation 13. The Bible says in verse 8 here, he's, he's called that wicked shall be revealed. He's called the one who's coming after is after the working of Satan without power, signs, and lying wonders. This man is the liar. This man is a deceiver. And so we, Paul starts telling about this period of time. And then he weaves into that as we saw last week. And he talks about, or the week before, he talks about people that have heard the gospel prior to the rapture, but they chose not to believe the, the gospel. They chose not to be saved. And he talks about here, if you remember here in verses, verses uh, let's see, six, uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, he talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit of God, who's the restraining power, because he lives inside of us, he's the restraining power against sin right now, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the world as we are taken out. The Bible calls the term here, he that withholdeth in verse 6, and he talks about in verse 7, he who now let will let and then he'll be taken out of the way and so he's telling them all this and he says those people with an opportunity to be saved they heard the gospel and didn't get saved when the when they enter to the tribulation period they're going to believe a lie a spirit of deception is going to be there and they're going to believe a lie and the bible says they will take pleasure in unrighteousness they will continue in unrighteousness and the bible says in verse 12 they will continue to have pleasure in unrighteousness these people have chosen not to get saved they've chosen to believe the lie of satan they've chosen to believe the things instead of believing on Jesus Christ to be saved. And so Paul is talking about these people, and, uh, and then we get, as we move, uh, scroll down here, we notice that then Paul in verse 13 and 14 is thanking God for the salvation of Thessalonian believers. He turns his attention back in verse 13 to the Thessalonian believers. He turns, he goes from talking about the tribulation and talking about those who did not believe on Jesus Christ and how they'll enter the tribulation. Of course, that's very scary, and you can imagine somewhat traumatic for those who thought, well, what about my mother and father? They've heard the gospel they didn't get saved. Or someone thought, what about my brother or sister or my son and daughter? They've heard the gospel and didn't get saved. And Paul had to transition back to where they were at. He had to transition, as you'll notice in verse 13, back to their position in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 13. Their position in Jesus Christ is described as God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Now when we read that as we saw last time, you cannot stop at verse 13 and isolate that verse and say that's teaching that God has predetermined some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. That's not what that 
that's teaching. You may think that, but that's not what it's teaching. You've got to read this in the entire context. He's talking about the choosing to salvation, which is our position in Jesus Christ, which is our sanctification. We go into verse 14, and he says, Whereunto he's called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at all this, notice in verses 13 and 14, Paul is referring in all this to the riches of our salvation, what God has bestowed upon you and I. You know, sometimes we talk about, I'm thankful for my salvation. But did you ever think about this? What exactly are you thankful for about your salvation? What is it about your salvation that makes you rejoice in Jesus Christ? By the way, how many of you are thankful for your salvation tonight? Amen. How many are thankful you're saved and going to heaven? How many are thankful tonight that, uh, that heaven's your home and Jesus is preparing a place for you that where he is that you may be also? How many are thankful tonight for the shed blood of Jesus Christ that paid the sin debt for all your sins? And how many tonight that you're part of the adoption of sons? And how many are you glad tonight that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside you? But it gets better than that because we need to understand this evening that in the riches of salvation, there is the absolute of salvation. Now, the absolute salvation, we read this here, is that God wants all men to be saved. God wants all men to be saved. God did not predetermine some to be saved and some to go to hell. That cuts against the grain of who God is. In fact, to me personally, that is blasphemy against the character of God. Notice some verses of Scripture that validate the fact that God wants all men to be saved. In John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. That one verse by itself speaks us about the availability and the absolute of salvation. God loved the entire world. And then the Bible says that he gave his only begotten son. When it says he gave Jesus, he gave Jesus for the whole world. As we talked about last week, this doctrine of limited atonement that the Calvinists teach, they teach that Jesus' atonement only died for those who God already predetermined to be saved. That is not true. That is not the word of God. Jesus died for every sinner. Jesus died for the the whole world. And then notice the word whosoever. Whosoever is an open invitation to anyone who believes on Jesus Christ. Notice 1 Timothy 2 4. The Bible says here, and again, you read that in the context of Paul's writing there in 1 Timothy. It says, he will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice the phrase there, all men. All men means all men. It means everybody. That means every man has an opportunity to be saved. We don't understand, you know, and we try to comprehend our mind. Well, what about somebody over here? And what about somebody over here? Can they get saved? Well, God loves everybody. God has his way. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, I believe God's sovereignty works in ways beyond our human understanding and getting the gospel to people that perhaps we think are otherwise lost. In my small way of thinking, I've listened to a lot of our Western way of preaching here. And our Western way of preaching here will say, you know, we need to get the gospel overseas. And we need to send missionaries here. And I'm for that. And we preach that. And we believe that. Because we know that, that the demand exceeds the supply. But I want to tell you something. I've traveled a little bit around the world. And I know this for a fact. That where we think the gospel has not gotten, God loves those people more than you and I. And somehow along the way, God has gotten the gospel to those people. God uses radio. God uses the internet. God uses a visiting missionary. God uses some relative who's from America or perhaps we say from another country to visit somewhere where maybe it's very difficult for the gospel to get into to get the gospel to them. I mean, we may think the gospel hasn't gotten there but it has. I reminded of our good friend Dr. Ed Lorena a few years ago Brother Irwin Brother Justin and I were preaching over there and he wanted us to go to this area about eight hours away 
where we'd have to take a boat, and then we'd have to walk another three hours in this very remote island area where there was a tribal group of people that one of his men went out and found, and they reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, this tribal people there, they, had to, they basically had to create a school environment to teach them the language so they could understand the word of God. I wish we could have gone, but we didn't have enough time, plus we didn't have the appropriate uh, gear and, and dress to do that. But it's amazing. When we think about people in certain areas that have not heard the gospel, God loves those people more than you and I will ever love them, and God will find his way to get at them. It's amazing someone whose door you knock on and you think we pray for our area, for people to get saved. No, somehow along the way, because God loves those people, God gets the gospel to them. Notice Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Notice that phrase again. Jesus Christ tasting death for every man. Notice Hebrews 2.9 explains the summation, everything about the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 2.9, we see the cradle there, Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels. We see the virgin birth of Christ in that. We see the cradle, but not only do we see the cradle, we see the cross in that. We notice in verse 9 that Jesus Christ died for every man. It speaks about the suffering of death and tasting death for every man. Jesus went to the cross. We see the cradle, we see the cross, but we see the crown. He's crowned with glory and honor. We see that Jesus Christ is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we're thankful tonight, regardless of what the Calvinists may say, because they'll take phrases like, every man and all men and the world and they'll tell you this and they're in a perverted way of the scriptures they'll say well that is only referring to the elect that is only referring to those who God has already predetermined to be saved that is a twisting of scriptures and taking it out of context when God says every man God means every man when God says the world he means the world when he says all men he means all men first John 2 2 and he's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only but for the sins of the whole world 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long from suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Hey, God, guys, tonight I want to tell you this. There's the absolute in salvation. But notice the second thing about the riches of salvation very quickly. Notice in chapter 2, verse 13, the latter part, we see the acceptance of salvation. Now, salvation is God's free gift, but you've got to receive it. You've got to accept it. You have to accept it. If you don't accept it, you are under the condemnation of sin already. You're already condemned to go to hell. So notice here in verse 13, as Paul's giving thanks for the salvation, the love of God, and the salvation that God gave these Thessalonian believers, he makes some very choice, uh, rich statements about salvation. He talked about their position when he says the, from the beginning. The beginning is not talking about the beginning of time. The beginning is talking about when Paul first went to the, Thessalon to the city of Thessalonica and brought the gospel there. From the beginning, he says he's chosen you salvation. So in other words, he's not saying, well, God chose you to be saved. He's already talking about where they were in salvation. They were chosen to be saved, and, and they were called to the glory, for the glorification that God has for every one of us. But he defines the agent or the process involved in salvation, and there's twofold process that's involved in, sal in salvation, if you would. He speaks about the sanctification spirit, but notice the latter part, the belief of the truth. Now, the belief of the truth is their free will being exercised to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, everyone in this room has a free will. One of our tenets as Baptists is individual soul liberty. With individual soul liberty, we believe that every individual has a choice to be saved. Listen, you chose to be here. Anybody not here tonight, they chose not to be here. Somebody watching by live stream tonight, they chose to watch by live stream. Somebody not watching by live stream, they're in trouble. They should be watching, amen? But, uh, but tonight... But I'm just saying tonight, you made a choice to be here. You made a, now, you may not have felt very good. You may have been very comfortable going home 
And if you've eaten your dinner and in your slippers and you think you've seen that couch, this sure feels really good. I'm not sure I want to go to church tonight. Maybe I'll just watch my live stream. But you made a choice. You decided to be a conscientious and a, and a faithful member. You came to church tonight. Thank God for that. Now notice these people here. They believe the truth. The belief accepts that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God. The belief is that his death and shed blood satisfies God's retirement requirements for sin. The belief is that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead by the power of God. The belief is that in his name only there is salvation. Would you notice Acts 8.37? Paul here, Philip, is talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. It's just Peter, I mean Philip, and the Ethiopian eunuch way out there in the Gaza desert there. And Philip said this to him, if thou believest with all the heart. Did you notice that? The condition? If thou believest with all the heart. We cannot believe for the sinner. And the sinner has to believe for himself. If thou believest with all the heart. Now that, that, that goes right against the face of Calvinism because Calvinism said, well, he was saved already. But Philip was telling him, you have a choice in the matter. You've got to decide to be saved or not to be saved. He said, if thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And the man answered, he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now that's acceptance, is it not? That's belief, is it not? That's free will exercise, is it not? That's what that man did. Look at Romans 10, 9. That, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We see the acceptance. By the way, that's the richest salvation. Isn't it wonderful that God had someone bring the gospel to you and you got saved? I mean, you think about your salvation. I think about many of you here tonight. I know just about everybody's, I think about everybody's salvation testimony. Aren't you glad for that moment of time? Maybe you, got, maybe you had a godly mother or father explain the gospel to you. And there on the living room couch, you trusted Christ as Savior. I was blessed this Sunday. And I'm blessed. This, these salvation testimonies really blessed me. But on Sunday, just as we were ending up the service, and we were out standing in the back and shaking hands, little Samantha Ho, Jor, uh, Jordan's sister, and Will and Maggie's little daughter came up to me. And, you know, she's very cute the way she is. She said, Pastor, I just want you to know, I just got saved last night. I trusted Jesus Christ my Savior. And I just kind of stopped and said, what did you do? She said, I got saved. I said, how do you know I got saved? And then Maggie came along and showed me, showed me some pictures of how Samantha got one of our, our colorful tracks there. And she saw the pictures about that talked about bridging the gap and heaven and hell and all that. She said, I read that and asked my mommy some questions. And I realized I was a sinner and I was going to hell. And I needed to believe on Jesus Christ my Savior. And I believed on Jesus that night. I called on the name of the Lord. I prayed and received Jesus Christ. I said, you know for sure you're saved? She says, I know I'm saved. She said, just like my brother George to save. Amen? And so, you know, I think tonight it's a wonderful thing that we can believe and trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. But notice something else. Look again at verse 13. We're talking about the richest salvation. There's the absolute. God wants all men to be saved. There's the acceptance. But notice the agent in salvation. Now notice this agent of salvation is the Holy Spirit of God. Titus 3, 5 tells us this. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is the one who transacts all this and makes it happen there. And Paul is talking about here the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit is intricately involved in salvation. You cannot have salvation apart from the regenerating of the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot have apart from the sanctifying. Sanctifying means the setting apart by the Holy Spirit. We're set apart to God. He validates here in verse 13 what, what Jesus said in John 3, 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water is symbolic of God's word. The Holy Spirit speaks for himself. The water and the Holy Spirit combine as the word of God settles in our hearts. We hear the word of God. The Holy Spirit quickens our heart. He reproves us, reproves us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
and he does the saving in our lives. Aren't you glad tonight the Holy Spirit convicted you? Aren't you glad that when that conviction came in, you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And then we get to verse 14. Notice the anticipation of salvation. He says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I like this verse because, in fact I love this verse because it just tells you it, it's good but it gets better. Amen? It's good but it gets better there. It's good that you're saved. It's good that you're part of the family of God. It's good that you're, that you're, you're going to heaven. But he says here, he says in verse 14, God's calling, God's choosing, in other words his positioning of us in the sanctifying and setting us apart. He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now chosen and called, as I said earlier, refer to our position in Jesus Christ. The obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ refers to the ultimate, the finalization of salvation, which we call glorification. Again, let me go through this again tonight. When you get saved, that's justification. Justification, first, uh, Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justification means we are free from the penalty of sin. We're no longer under his penalty. We've been set free. We, there's, no, there's no sin that God, that, uh, there's no sin that anybody can point to that has not been forgiven. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. We are, we are, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. But now that we're saved, God starts that process of sanctification. Now that's where we're at when you see the words chosen and the words called and the words elect, we are, that's sanctification. Sanctification is God setting us apart. Now watch this. As you read Romans chapter 6, sanctification tells us that we've been set free from the power of sin. You don't have to let sin have dominion over you anymore. You don't have to yield your members as members of unrighteousness, as, as Romans chapter 6 speaks of there. We live in holiness and we live for holiness. But it doesn't stop there. As we strive to be conformed more to the image of Christ, we will ultimately be like Jesus Christ, as 1 John 3, 3 speaks about, we ought to become like Christ at our glorification. Glorification is when we go up to heaven, when we meet him up in, in glory there, and we're no longer in this mortal body. There's no longer this flesh and blood. This mortal has become immortal. This corruptible has become incorruptible. And notice what he says here again in verse 14. Whereunto he's called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to get ahead of myself for a minute, but that's the good hope. The good hope is knowing of that glorification. Listen, you need to spend some time reading your Bible and spending some time thinking about the future and not what you are, but what you will be and how you'll be transformed. Go with me to 1 John chapter 3. I just alluded to it, but go with me to 1 John 3 that we may just meditate and mull on this for just a moment. In 1 John 3, Again, John is doing the same thing. He begins in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he talks about the Antichrist. Then he talks about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ and the importance of abiding in him and having fellowship with him and continuing him and not being found ashamed at his coming. And then he tells us in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Now we can stop there for a minute and say, Thank God that I'm loved by God. I may have the worst day possible. Everybody may have turned their back on me. Someone may have just grit their teeth at me and someone may have rejected me but God never rejects you God loves you then he says in verse 2 beloved because he's continuing from the same thought where he left off in 1st John chapter 2 he says beloved now are we the sons of God by the way aren't you glad now you're the sons of God and not later amen now are we the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be now John's talking about glorification and you've got to remember the the, the false doctrines that were being av advocated there Gnosticism at that time where it, it just said that Jesus Christ could not be the son of God they said he had flesh 
flesh, and all flesh was evil. And so therefore, Jesus Christ was spirit only. He was, not, he, was not, he was not God in the flesh. That's what they were teaching. And he says, but you have to understand something. We're the sons of God, and it doesn't appear what we shall be. Now, we're not sure how it's going to come about. But he says, but we know. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, what are we going to be like? Just like Jesus Christ. That's glorification. We're going to have this sinless, this sinless uh, capability, this sinless essence, just like our Lord Jesus Christ. We shall see him as he is. And so, therefore, Paul, John says in verse 3, here's the incentive for Christian living. Here's the incentive to stay on track and not get off track and not to get into immorality and into false doctrine and not to get into things that will to, to, uh, destroy your faith. He says that every man that has has this what? Hope. Every man that has this hope in him, purifying himself even as he is pure. You see, Paul here, as he's going, we go back to 2 Thessalonians, Paul here is talking about the anticipation of our glorification. Go back to 2 Thessalonians 2. But notice one other thing here about the riches of our salvation. Now, Paul's talking about the absolute. God wants all men to be saved. And Paul talks about the acceptance, the belief of the truth. And Paul talks about the, the agent involved in salvation, the Holy Spirit who sanctifies and the Holy Spirit who does the renewing and the regenerating. And Paul talks about the anticipation in verse 14 of the glorification. But Paul also reminds us of the adversity. As we go to verse 11 to 13, if you don't correctly interpret this passage of Scripture, you'll fall into the same deception. The Calvinists have fallen into and will advocate believe that God has chosen some to be saved and some to go to hell. You notice here that doctrine is, is, is advocated because of a wrong interpretation of verse 13. It's not, verse 13 has not been corrected and uh, interpreted correctly in accordance with the, with, the, with, the, with the context there. And Paul is talking about here about this adversity. Satan doesn't want people to be saved. Satan despises when people get saved. And of course, if Satan could do, use any means, he's using Calvin's institutes and he's using the false doctrines of Calvinism to, to, to bind men and beguile them and to lead them to thinking that, listen, where Calvinism comes in church, a church dies. Where Calvinism comes in, a church doesn't grow. Where Calvinism comes in, they only emphasize the sovereignty of God and grace. You've got to be careful just about for almost every church that's got the name grace in it. John MacArthur, which is a big proponent of Calvinism, is all over his writings there. His his church name is Grace Community Church. You find that a lot of churches like Grace Bible Church and things like that, you better look at their statement of faith. Or Grace Baptist Church, you better look at their statement of faith to make sure that they don't hold to that. The other day, Brother Justin and I were talking about a particular man that grabbed and asked about a certain man. He says, well, I think he's okay. And I said, well, the reason why I asked you, I went to look at the church statement of faith because it says there that he holds a position of sovereign grace. Now, position to me of sovereign grace is implying to me that he believes in, that he believes that, that God's grace is irresistible, that, you, that since you're already pre-elected, you can't resist it. And he believes in the sovereignty of God so much that it, it downplays the free will of man. And I'm just saying to you tonight, as we consider these things, Satan would try to beguile you and try to use intellectualism because, you know what, we, are, we find it a great appeal to be intellectualized. We great, find it a great appeal to stimulate our thinking. But I want to tell you, when you read the books of men, the books of men are the opinions of men. Men are fallible 
fallible. Men will fail, but God's word will never fail. When we never had commentaries, men could correctly interpret the word of God. They could study to show themselves approved unto God as workmen that need us not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so can you and so can I. That's why the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us as our teacher. We would just take some time to carefully read God's word and not get caught up and tripped up by words and semantics and things of that nature and look into other versions of what they say or try to find out what this teacher says, but say, what does thus say the Lord? And when God tells you what's going on, you're going to understand the word of God. So you notice in these verses, number one, the rich in salvation clearly teaches that God is the author in salvation. And he freely offers to all who will believe on him the wonderful free gift of eternal life. To reject salvation is to our own detriment and to our condemnation. We see the rich in salvation. But you notice secondly, verse 15, notice the responsibility in salvation. Now remember, Paul's writing to these believers. He's encouraging them about their position in Jesus Christ in verse 13. He's encouraging them about their future glorification in verse 14. You've got to remember, they were shaken in mind. They were troubled according to verse 2. They were worried about this falling away. And so he's reminding them, and God reminds us, of the responsibilities in salvation. And he said in verse 15, Therefore, brethren... Stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or epistle. I think there are two extremes of believers we can find in verse 15 as he's writing this. On one extreme, you have believers that are troubled and shaken in mind. They're concerned. Persecution is going on. They've experienced persecution at Thessalonica. We read about that in Acts chapter 17. But on the other extreme... We can see those who've been encouraged by Paul's writing and feel like, well, you know, um, he's called us to glorification. Uh, I'm saved. Why do I need to do anything? Why don't I just sit back and take my time? Let other people serve God. Let other people burn themselves out, things of that nature. And Paul has talked about the tribulation and all of these things and so forth there. But Paul very firmly noticed verse 15. He's admonishing brethren. Brothers and sisters in Christ. People that came to know Christ as their Savior under his ministry. People that were discipled by him during that three-week period of time, those three Sabbath days that he was there, and then maybe just a little bit longer where he preached the word of God and discipled them. Perhaps he just had a very intensive day-by-day thing. He just said, I've got to see you, and I've got to help you through this. He tells them, number one in verse 15, to stand fast in the Lord. Be steadfast. You know, there's a lot of winds blowing these days. There's a lot of winds of false doctrine. There's a lot of winds of persuasion. There's a lot of winds of different voices. And I'm going to say tonight, as a church, as an individual, you may be someone who's being moved by these winds. You might be someone being moved by an idea day. And you might be someone being moved by the intellectual, uh, the intellectual appeal of Calvinism. And you might be someone being moved today by the hyper-grace movement, where they're basically resurrecting what Chuck Swindoll uh, perversely taught through his book, Grace Awakening, that because God's grace is at work, you can do whatever you want, and grace is a license to sin. I want to tell you tonight, grace is not a license to sin. The Bible says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly and righteously in this ungodly world. I remind you tonight, you might be persuaded by those false winds. You might be persuaded by the false winds of changing your Bible translation. And you may be persuaded by the false winds that want you to change your church. Or maybe you're being moved by the the winds of persuasion that are telling you, why do you want to be an independent Baptist church? Why don't you be like everybody else? Why don't you join the majority? Why don't you be like the Protestants? Because Baptists and Protestants 
Protestants are not the same. We are not Protestants. We are Baptists. Protestants came out of the Catholic Church. Baptists traced their roots back to the Lord Jesus Christ there. So Paul says you need to be steadfast. That means to be steady. It means firm. It means unshakable. That means the ground may be shaking underneath you, but you're holding your place. You're holding your position. I think as he uses the word steadfast, I think of, I think of uh, some of David's mighty men. I think of Eleazar, who stood his ground, and his hand clave to the sword, and he defended a barley field. I think of another man by the name of Shammah. Shammah was there all by himself, and everybody forsook that, that barley field or that lentil field. They said, that land is not worth keeping. That land is not worth salvaging. But that man, Shammah, said, no, that land is worth keeping. That was someone's inheritance. That was passed down. And Moses taught us, according to the word of God, we're to hold on to that, not let the enemy take it. And listen, that man stood fast his ground and he defeated the enemy. And some of us right now, we're being blown by our emotions. And some of us are being blown by the doctrine. And some of us are being blown by past feelings. And some of us are being blown by the winds of unforgiveness and the winds of bitterness. And we have to realize tonight, it's time as God's people when all these winds are blowing, because we're not going to stop the winds from blowing. We're not going to stop them coming from the north and the south and the east and the west. We have to decide we're going to stay firm. We're going to be steadfast and be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Then notice something else he says here. He says, stand fast. Would you notice this phrase here? Hold the traditions which you've been taught. That's why you need to go through discipleship. That's why if you're going to grow in the Lord, you're not going to get enough by just being a Sunday morning only attendee. Amen. Amen. You're not going to learn the word of God and know your position Know what it means to be a Baptist. Know what it means to be a fundamentalist. And knows what it means to be a soul winner. He says, hold the traditions whereby you've been called. He says, listen, you saw when we were at Thessalonica, we grounded you. In Acts chapter 14, Paul talks about going to those churches that he established on the Merch Mystery Tour, and he, how he grounded them in the Word, and he taught them tradition, and he showed them the way, and he showed them how church should be run, and he showed them how church should be practiced. Listen, they didn't have all the, uh, the stuff we do today. I mean, they, I think in those days, there was such a purity to the church. They didn't have to deal with all the stuff. They didn't have to worry about, do we have to have an AV system? Do we have to have this? No, all they had was the power of God and God's Word. They just preached away, and people got saved, and God, did the, God added to the church. Amen? I mean, they just kept seeing people people save and after church. I'm amazed the churches I've been to which have less than what we have, but I'm telling you, they're seeing people saved all the time and added to the church and being baptized and preachers being called and things of that nature. Somehow we've gotten to our mind, we've got to have all these sights and sounds and all these things, and I'm, I'm glad for those things, and, and, and they're helpful to us in those things. But I'm going to tell you, somewhere along the way, we've got to decide, when Jesus Christ said he'll build his church, he meant what he said, he would build his church. And so we look over here, what, what do we have to hold fast to? Well, let me give you six or seven things real quickly. Number one, hold fast to the doctrines of the Bible. Hold fast to the doctrine Bible. Remove not the ancient landmarks. Depart not from the old past. Don't leave them. Don't let the false winds and teachers they persuade you otherwise. Stand firm on the doctrines of God's word. Don't get shaky on that. Number two, we must keep preaching the gospel and winning souls. Now, people get tired. They get, they get excited for a little while. And then they get tired. Okay, here we go again. We're going to have an anniversary conference, and we're going to preach the gospel, and we're going to have a we're going to have Easter we're going to have Easter music, and we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to have this one preach the gospel, and you know we got to go look for friends. And the pastor wants to. It's not the pastor wants to do it. It's God. It's Jesus Christ's commission. Amen. Amen. The Jesus Christ called us to do. We're to preach the gospel to every creature. Was keep preaching the gospel and winning souls. Don't ever let up on it. Don't ever, don't ever let up. Don't, don't get to a place where you don't give an invitation every time the gospel is given. Thirdly, we must make prayer and the Word of God our primary priority of our lives. The apostle said we must give ourselves daily to prayer and to the word of God. 
Fourthly, we must be committed to becoming sold-out disciples of Jesus Christ. I was meditating the other day through Luke 14 in my devotions and just reminded how three, at least three different times Jesus said, if you're not hated by your family, if you don't take up your cross, he said, if you, if you, if you, all these things, he says, you cannot be my disciple. And somehow the idea of discipleship is being a disciple of Jesus Christ has really lost its meaning. It's been very watered down. We think we're disciple of Jesus Christ because we went through a discipleship class. That doesn't make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. You may have gone through a book and you may have had all the right answers and you may have completed a book and got a certificate. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ when you're all sold out for Jesus, where there's nothing between you and the Lord. You're going to carry that cross all the way. And even if it means you're going to suffer and you're going to be rejected, you're going to carry that cross for Jesus Christ. You're going to do what the Lord wants you to do. We have a convenient Christianity. We live in a Laodicean age which emphasizes lukewarmness. We have to understand tonight, we, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we put everything on the line and we're just saying, God, whatever you want, thy will be done. Notice, fifthly, we must continue to make the spread of the gospel and church planting a priority. Sixth, we must pray for laborers for the harvest and preachers to be called. Seventh, we must stand fast against the devil, the world, and the flesh. I'm saying tonight, as Paul wrote them, they knew what he's talking about. He was just reiterating in one verse everything he told them in 1 Thessalonians. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught. Now listen, if you're sitting in church, look up here. If you're sitting in church and it's going through one ear and out the other, you're sitting there with a scorner's heart, and you're not really paying attention to the word of God. You're not going to be able to stand fast or hold fast to those traditions. You're sitting there being critical of the message, critical of the Lord's work. I'm going to tell you tonight, you're not going to be someone who's going to hold fast. In fact, the winds of doubt, the winds of deception, the winds of the devil have already blown you over. They've already blown you over there. And I'm saying tonight, you better take heed lest you fall, the Apostle Paul said. These are the last days we're in. We need to understand this evening. This is not a time to give up the ship, to raise the white flag, to quit and depart on the Lord. This is the time for us to get our heels dug in deep and realize tonight we must hold fast the traditions which we've been taught. And so tonight we see the riches of salvation, the responsibility of salvation, but quickly as we close tonight, would you notice the word of comfort in verses 16 to 17? Notice the relief in salvation. Now again, Paul is writing these final verses to encourage these people that he's ministered to. In verse 16, he reminds us of God's love for us. How many thankful God loves you tonight? Amen. amen. I mean, I mean, that's the only thing that gets you through when you're discouraged. Amen. Now, though, our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And God, and look at how he phrases it, even our Father, which has loved us. He doesn't use us. He loves us. He doesn't take advantage of us. He loves us. He doesn't abuse us. He loves us. He doesn't abandon us. He loves us. He doesn't tell us something and then skips out on his word. He loves us. Amen? He says, now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. And we get discouraged as Christians. Some of you may have had a tough week already. You've been discouraged. We live in a society that's dangerous, sinful and twisted. People who hold positions of trust do something to betray that trust and we get, we get all bent out of shape on that. I just read about a law enforcement officer, a very highly decorated Marine veteran that was just incarcerated, was just, uh, just incarcerated and uh, just found guilty of, doing, of uh, molesting a minor and things like that. And I just read this, how could this be in this kind of situation? I was just reading the story there, just, I thought, wow, this is awful here. A position of high trust. 
That man's going to vigorously fight those charges to prove his innocence. And, but, you know, you have a victim here that's given a very, some very strong, detailed information to law enforcement about that. And you think about churches where they've had people in positions of trust. I think of one maybe two miles from here where they had a number of men, uh, men of the clergy that they just kind of recycled over 20 years. All of them were sexual predators, and they defiled people and messed with people's kids, which is wrong. Now look at that situation and, you, and if, you don't, if you're not very careful, you can look at that and say, man, my society's so messed up, religion's messed up, church is messed up, I think I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna become a hermit and go hide somewhere, amen, you know? And we can get discouraged by these things, but we have to remind ourselves as we read all this junk that goes on and we hear about all these things and burglaries and packages being stolen off of people's uh, porches and things like that, that we cannot allow ourselves to become apprehensive, intimidated by those things. So Paul knew they, that's where they were at. And Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, listen, God loves you, and he's given us. He said, because I'm in the same boat. I get discouraged, he said. And I get those dark days. And I have those moments of time I'm worried and filled with anxiety. But he says, God has given us everlasting consolation, and he's given us good hope. That's the title of the message, good hope. God doesn't give us bad hope, amen? He doesn't give us negative hope. He gives us good hope. It's the anticipation of a future event that will occur. So he says, I'm giving you good hope for your life. Now I want you to notice three things that come out of this good hope that God gives us. I want you to see the three means by which God encourages us with that good hope. Are you ready? Number one, notice number one, in verse, in verse 15, he gives us grace through this hope. Would you notice this? And he gives us good hope through grace. Do you ever wonder how God gives you that hope? It's through grace, it's through grace. Grace is God's loving working in us. We'll be preaching about the grace of God this weekend. Grace is God's strength made perfect in our weakness. Grace is God's means of helping us to endure our sufferings and trials. Grace is the ability to lovingly withstand opposition and not become bitter. Grace enables us not to cave in under pressure. Grace enables us to love those who do not love us. Grace enables us to do what we cannot do in our normal strength. It's grace. He gives us hope through grace. Grace is patience under fire. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to go to your Bible. Don't look at your notes. Go to your Bible to it. And I want to show you some thoughts here that the Apostle Peter, uh, he, he emphasizes on the same wavelength as the Apostle Paul, 1 Peter chapter 2. And of course, if, you, if you've read 1 Peter, you know that he's writing to be, believers that are going through uh, uh, periods of suffering, intense suffering. He calls it the trial of their faith. And Peter's he's writing there, he wanted them to realize that how do, you, how do you make it when you're suffering? How do you make it when you think people are against you? How do you make it when you're in a hostile culture? When adversity is over your head, as John Getch would say the other day when he preached for us on the life of Job. Would you notice verses 19 to 20? And Peter writes just kind of echoing what Paul is talking about here, about this good hope through grace. He says in verse 19, I hope you're there because I don't want you to miss this. He said, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Would you notice this? He's talking to believers. Look up here. He's talking to believers who are victims. They're being victimized. They're suffering wrongfully. Maybe you feel like you're suffering wrongfully. Maybe you feel like for all your life you've suffered wrongfully. He's writing to believers in verse 19. He says, if a man for conscience towards God endures grief. They're suffering wrongfully. They feel like they're victims. But their conscience towards God, they, they can't, they're going to have to go through it. 
And Paul uses a very interesting word to describe how God gets you and I through this suffering. Would you notice verse 19? Circle the word thankworthy. The word thankworthy is the same word we get our word grace from, charis. For this is the grace of God. Did you see that? But Paul wanted us to understand that thankfulness is a grace of God. Thankfulness is an emanation, emanation of grace. Thankfulness, if you're not thankful, God's grace is not at work in you. If you're an ingrate about everything, there's something wrong with your heart. And the Bible says here, for this is thankworthy, this is the grace of God, if a man for conscience towards God endures grief. You're, you're suffering for the faith, not suffering because you were foolish. Suffering for the faith, a man for conscience suffer grievously, he says here, or suffering wrongfully. He says, this is the grace of God. Why did God put me to it? Because how are you going to learn God's grace if you're not going through trouble? The Bible says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, you're not going to grow in grace by being Mr. Nice Guy and no problems and troubles happen to you and every day is a sunshine day and every day you've got a positive account and nothing bad happens to you. Your car never breaks down. Your dog never runs away. Your dog never barks at you. You never get by, bit by a dog on soul winning and things go bad and nobody rejects you. No, that's not how life works. He said, listen, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. This is thankworthy. This is the grace of God. This is the grace of God. You need to thank God if you're going through trial. You need to thank God that that trial may be a fiery trial, but this is thankworthy. He's saying, this is the grace of God. If a man for conscience sake suffer wrongfully. But notice verse 21, verse 20. Because he's not done, not done helping us with this matter of suffering and grief and adversity and troubles and problems. For what glory is it if... When you be buffeted for your fault, you shall take it patiently. He says, now, thank God you're taking it patiently. Hit me again, you know. Run me over again. But he said, what glory is it, in verse 20, if you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. Then he says, but if, when you do well and suffer for it, and take it patiently. In other words, you say, God has, a, God has a perfect plan in all this, and God knows what he's doing, and, and all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And, and, he, and it's just like Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And then he said in verse 20, would you notice this? You take it patiently. He says, this is acceptable with God. Circle the word acceptable. The word acceptable is the word charis, or the word grace. This is the grace of God. Did you notice that in two verses? He's saying, he's saying, this is the grace of God. That's what Paul's talking about there. How do we have good hope? God gives us grace. Grace uninhibited in our life makes us well-pleasing to God. There's a second thing he gives us. Go back to, verse, go back to 2 Thessalonians 2. He gives us grace, but you notice 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. Notice he gives us comfort. God has given us everlasting consolation, good hope through grace. Then he says, and he will comfort your hearts. If you came in late, Judith Hightower's sister, Perry, who we've been praying for, who's been in declining health, she's had kidney failure. and We're thankful Judith took the Right Start book the other day and read it to her and read the ver- had her sister read the verses back. She had that, I, mean, I said, let's pray that your sister will get a surge of strength and alertness 
so you get one more chance to get the gospel to her. I said, just ask her, does she know for sure she saves not? You better go through the verses with her. And I said, just to give you a track, why don't you take the right start book and kind of walk through, walk her through all the verses. When she read those verses with Judith, Perry said, I get it. How do I get it? And she led her sister to Christ. Amen. She helped her sister get saved. This morning or this afternoon, I kind of lost track of time. I got a message from Judith. She's a pastor. They just told my sister they just admitted her into hospice comfort care. I said, we're praying that God will give her special grace during this time, give you special grace. Comfort care in medical terminology is basically to make your suffering less because they know your days are numbered. But I want you to notice the comfort God gives us here. The word comfort, you might write this in your notes here. The word comfort is the same word, uh, the word parakaleo. And wherever you read the word parakaleo in the New Testament, it means to come to one side. In other words, the Holy Spirit, the word para means to be at someone's side, to come alongside of. Parakaleo is a little bit stronger word. It means to come alongside of that person. And the Holy Spirit of God comes alongside of us. So he's our paraclete. He's there for us. He's there to quiet our hearts in the storms of life. He turns our sorrow to joy. Go with me to two passages very quickly. Look at Acts chapter 27. And if you know the story there, Paul is on in the Mediterranean Sea at a terrible storm. The storm's name was Eurycladon, which means cyclone. The ship was devastated. They threw all the goods over, overboard. I mean, the thing was breaking apart. It was a mess. And you'll notice in verse 21, if you're there, are you there? Acts 27, notice verse 21. It says, but after long abstinence, you know, remember they told Paul, we're not going to listen to you, Paul. We're going to listen to what the centurion says. And so Paul, instead of being a jerk and saying, well, you better listen to me because I'm the preacher here, Paul said, okay, you have to find out for yourself. He just applied a spirit of meekness. He says, I know God's in control of this. And it was, and I'll be honest with you, as you read that passage of scripture, it was pretty hairy. It was uh, very frightening. Paul was scared himself too. He said, when he said, when all hope is gone, he, he says that in a previous verse, when all hope is lost, that's what he said, when the sun had not shone for many days and all we saw were the, the stars and the moon and the night. And he said, we didn't see the stars and the moon. It was just night. He says, and all hope was gone. Then Paul speaks up verse 21. And notice what he says. Notice the comfort, how he comes alongside of 287 men on that ship who thought they were gonna die. He said, but after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them. And he said, sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosened from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. He said, you know what? He says, you should have listened. We wouldn't be in this place if you just listened. I told you by the inspiration of God this was going to happen. You should have listened to me and you would have incurred no loss. Listen to me tonight. You better listen to the word of God so you don't lose. You better listen to the word of God so you don't lose. And then he went on in verse 22 and he says, now I exhort you, be of good cheer. For there shall, no, there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but only of the ship. You know what he's saying there? Life is more important than property. Life is more important than property. There should be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me, notice this, Pericaleo, there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. I love that part there. Saying, fear not, Paul, Thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Now, when Paul said that, I'm not sure if that really sunk in. But he's saying, guys, I'm going to tell you, I didn't get on this ship as a prisoner. I got on this ship because God wanted me to go to Caesar. I've got a message to bring. Now, God may have a roundabout way to get me there, but God just told me, reminded me tonight, I'm not going down 
with this ship, and you're not going down with this ship. No matter how bad this ship is battered, we're going to get to my destination because God told me that's going to happen. He says, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given thee all them that sail thee. Now, when he said that, I mean, you have to think about the power of God on the Apostle Paul. He said, God has given to me all them that sail with thee. In other words, he's saying, listen, Paul, I've entrusted into your care during this storm all these people. Did you listen to that? Look up here tonight. Did you realize when it's your storm, when it's your trouble, God's also entrusted into your care. There's other people in your life that are affected by that storm, and God has brought them into your life as well. If you mess up, you make the wrong decision, you affect their faith, and you affect what happens to them as well. And Paul said there, God has given to thee, thee all them that sail with thee. Therefore, he said, wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as was told me. Now, Paul experienced the parakaleo, the comfort of God. Notice 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. How many thankful for that tonight? Amen. Who comforted us in all our tribulations. Don't say, well, God didn't comfort me. through this. He comforts you in every tribulation. You just got to listen to the small voice of God. That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted God. Thank God he put you through trial because he's going to use you to help somebody else. So he gives us grace. He gives us comfort. But finally, what you notice in verse 17, he gives us strength. Comfort your hearts establish you in every good work, word and work. He said, you know what? You got work to do. He's going to establish you. Now, what does the word establish mean? Well, write this down in your notes if it's not there. The word establish is, is, um, means in this context, let God turn you around in the right direction and firmly fix you. Now, this word is used a couple other times. It's the same word. It's one word. It's the same word Jesus used when he spoke to Peter in Luke 22. He says, Peter, I prayed for thee. And he says, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The same idea. It's the same word that Luke used to describe Paul. Uh, Paul there in, in Acts 14, when he described Paul, he says, Paul strengthened the churches in the word. And so what you notice is here, go back to the context, verse 17. Again, the context here are believers who are shaken and troubled in spirit. They've been, they've been reaffirmed about their salvation. They've been reaffirmed about the riches. They've been re-encouraged re, re again about the responsibility. And now he's giving them comfort and relief. And he says, now listen, he says, God's going to give us everlasting, he's given us everlasting consolations. Present now. He's given us hope through, good hope through grace. He's, gonna, he's comforting your hearts. And now he will establish you or strengthen you. Notice this, in every good word and work. He says, as you just go on and serve God, as you go on to honor Jesus Christ, he's going to establish you or strengthen you in every good, we're not bad. Bad words, not bad deeds, every good word and every good work. In other words, he's coming alongside you. Let God strengthen you. You know what he's saying there? I know you're weak. And I know you don't have the words. And I know you miss that I'm not there. And I know you miss that Timothy's not there. But he says, you know what? You've you got to get past, wean yourself off man dependency and get yourself on God dependency. Amen? And he says, depend upon God and God will comfort you and God will establish you and he will strengthen you in every good word and every good work. Aren't you glad tonight that we have a God in heaven who's the God of all strength? Amen. There for you and I. There's a Peanuts cartoon Lucy and Linus. Linus was sitting around and Lucy said, Linus was sitting around, Lucy came in the room and he knew as soon as his sister came in the room there'd be problems there. And he, she said, go get me a glass of water. And Linus being the younger brother said this, why should I? You never do anything for me. And she said, 
I tell you what, when you're 75 years old, now again, he's just a little kid. When you're 75 years old, I will bake you a chocolate cake. Linus got up and got her the cup, glass of water there. And then he thought, they, they, she, they, she asked later on, why did you do that? And this is what he said. Life is more hopeful when you have something you look forward to. Now that's facetious tonight as I close, but life is more hopeful when you have something to look forward to. What are we looking forward to? Jesus coming again. Amen. Our glorification. The good hope of Jesus Christ tonight. Are you resting in his hope? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the God of all hope, the God of everlasting consolation. Are you feeling like you're past that place? Get your hope restored. Get encouraged with the good hope. They're the riches of our salvation. There's the responsibility of our salvation. There's the relief in our salvation.